When you take a pigeon away from its home roost, maybe two or three hundred miles to a place it's never visited before and release it, it will very often find its way home successfully. And that, when you pause to think about it, is, is a very extraordinary ability. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. It has been said that the Sahara Desert ant, Cataglyphus fortis, is a navigational miracle. These tiny insects live in the barren salt pans of North Africa, where ground temperatures soar to 145 degrees Fahrenheit, too hot for almost any animal to survive. The desert ants live underground and leave their nests at the hottest time of day to avoid predators and forage for food, typically other insects that have died of exposure. To avoid being burned to a crisp themselves, they must be as efficient as possible in returning to their nest. How does the desert ant find its way back, sometimes over distances of 100 meters, via the fastest route? The answer, our guest, award-winning author David Barry writes, is astounding and flat-out humbling, as is the ingenuity of the scientists who study them. Here, he writes, is a small insect capable of performing navigational feats that we humans can only manage with the help of instruments. The ants determine where they are at a given time by measuring the angles of their turns, by using the sun's patterns of polarized light in the sky as a compass, and by measuring the distances they travel, by counting their steps like a natural odometer. They then integrate this information, a process humans call dead reckoning, and relied upon for marine navigation into the mid-18th century. The ant's navigational toolkit also includes the ability to use visual landmarks and to rely on the direction of wind, micro-vibrations, and scent. They can distinguish reliable landmarks from the unreliable landmarks and may even, like bees, make use of optic flow, the visual phenomenon in which the scenery around us flows past us at a rate that depends both on how fast we're going and how far away the scenery is from us. And recent studies indicate they may also orient by using Earth's magnetic field. Their talents reveal an extraordinary awareness of the environment around them, a form of perception that is far different from our own. These ants are just one of the many animal navigators that David Barry explores in his captivating new book, Super Navigators, Exploring the Wonders of How Animals Find Their Way. The author Henry Beston famously wrote that animals are, quote, not brethren, they are not underlings, they are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. In his book, Super Navigators, Barry, a former British diplomat, travels around the globe and through scientific literature, both historic and contemporary, to learn about the extraordinary and still mysterious navigational powers of animals. He meets with the scientists who study the wayfinding skills of birds, butterflies, and more. He returns from these other nations to human society as a special envoy, skillfully describing the stunning array of navigational intelligences of other species, often exceeding our wildest imaginations, and issues a call to better respect and celebrate these animals' abilities in an era where human behavior is increasingly impeding them. David Barry is a fellow of the Royal Institute of Navigation and has sailed all over the world and made many long voyages. After serving in the British diplomatic service, Barry worked in the arts and as a law reform campaigner. 
His award-winning first book, Sextant, told the story of one of the most important human navigational instruments ever created. David Barry, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. It's a great pleasure to be here. So you've sailed all over the world. Some might say you're an expert in human navigation. What drew you to other animals' navigational powers? To be honest, it goes right back to my earliest childhood. I, I was always fascinated by animals of all kinds, and especially by small animals with six legs, insects. Uh, I think I was first introduced to, to insects, actually, by my grandfather. But I had a wonderful teacher uh, at primary school called John Steadman, and he was a professional entomologist, though he taught us maths. And at my school in the south of England, uh, he ran a light trap for catching moths. And every morning in the summer months coming into school, I would rush to his office where the trap was kept. And together with him and some other interested kids, we would look at what had come into the trap during the night, which moths had been attracted to the light. And, and it, was, um, it was just a terrific thrill because every day there would be something different. There'd be things that were the same, but there'd be different things too. And, and sometimes, I mean, the big excitement for me at that age was when one of the great big hawk moths uh, had flown in and get these great, big, magnificent, streamlined moths that uh, you never normally see except in a trap. And uh, that was a great excitement. And he, uh, John Steadman, was the one who told me about the amazing migration of the North American monarch butterfly, which at that time, talking about the 1960s, was still deeply mysterious. And indeed, he bought me a pupa of a monarch butterfly as a, as a, as a gift. Uh, which was just such a an inspiring thing to do. I, I still remember it vividly, this extraordinary jade green object with little tiny dots of gold all around it. Uh, so my interest goes back that far. And then later on, um, I got interested in sailing and I became a, a quite a serious navigator at sea. And then at uh, university, I went to Oxford and studied experimental psychology and philosophy. And part of the course in experimental psychology was, of course, looking at animal behavior. Um, and this was the early 70s. And people like Lorentz uh, and Tinbergen were still alive. In fact, Tinbergen was working in the next door department. I remember him wandering around with his great big shock of white hair and his, uh, he just, he, he looked like a, a wonderful eccentric. So although I had a career, as you rightly said, in the diplomatic service and in the arts and so on, I've always retained this deep interest in, in animals, especially insects, and, uh, and in, in navigation. And this book kind of brought the two together. That's a great opening anecdote, too, because it also highlights not just that you were close to some of these leading scientists growing up, but that actually the animals in urban and suburban environments that you, you don't have to go far into exotic places or to the Sahara to see desert ants, to see animals that are navigating with extraordinary abilities. You talk about in the book, for instance, pigeons. You mentioned the monarch butterfly. Could you tell us about how some of these animals get around? Yes. Um, well, the, let's start with the pigeon because uh, birds are obviously astonishing uh, navigators. They have to be because they 
they often fly over long distances and and need to be able to uh, return to their nests and so forth. And pigeons have been studied probably longer than any other bird in terms of of their navigational abilities. And the, the, the thing about pigeons is that they like most animals that, that we've studied closely, they actually rely on a whole host of different mechanisms. There's a lot of redundancy in their navigational system. So they use obvious things like uh, visual landmarks. And there are some wonderful uh, experiments which show how pigeons will, will kind of get into a stereotyped routine when they they will follow a road and they'll go to a roundabout and they'll take a particular road off the roundabout. Then they'll go along a, a railroad line and down a river, even though that may not be the straightest route to get back to their home roost. So they, they use landmarks. Um, they also uh, take advantage of the Earth's magnetic field. We know that they have a, a magnetic compass sense. This is something that we find again and again and again across the whole uh, animal kingdom, and indeed uh, bacteria, uh, but let's not get into that. Um, and um, the big, the big dispute, the big argument, which has still not been resolved, is how do pigeons? When you when you take a pigeon away from its home roost, maybe two or three hundred miles to a place it's never visited before, and release it, it will very often find its way home successfully. And that, when you pause to think about it, is, is a very extraordinary ability. What is it that enables a pigeon, when it's released in a, an unfamiliar place, to work out both where it is and where it needs to go to get home? And about 40-odd years ago, uh, an Italian scientist working in Pisa thought that it might be worth uh, looking into the possibility that they used their sense of smell. He didn't, I think, believe that it was very likely that smell was important, but he did a series of experiments in which he deprived uh, homing pigeons of their sense of smell to see what would happen. And to cut a long story short, there, there's been a succession of experiments over the last 40 years which do strongly suggest that smell plays some important part in the ability of pigeons to find their way home. And the explanation that he came up with is that when the pigeons are sitting as young birds in the home loft, they pay very, very close attention to the odors that are brought to them on the wind. And they associate each odor with a particular wind direction. And then when they're flying around and they pick up a smell, they can use that information to work out roughly what direction they must have gone in. Um, there's still plenty of people who are skeptical about this. Um, and indeed, uh, people have found it quite difficult to replicate all of these experiments. But I think it's fair to say now that there's a, a, a fairly broad consensus that smell plays some part in the system. However, uh, there's an American scientist called John Hagstrom, who actually is a geophysicist working for the US Geological Service, who's come up with a, a different uh, explanation. It's not necessarily a competing explanation. It could be a, a parallel system. He thinks it's possible that pigeons 
are making use of very low frequency sound, infrasound, and that when pigeons are returning to their homes, they associate their home with a particular frequency, a particular timbre, if you like, of low frequency sound that emanates from that location. Now that sounds, if anything, even more uh, improbable than the olfactory hypothesis that I was just describing, but, but he's come up with some really uh, extraordinary uh, evidence that suggests there may be something in this, including evidence from pigeon races. Pigeon races sometimes go horribly wrong, and the pigeons, when released, fail to get home, and that's called a race is being smashed. When races are smashed, people wonder what went wrong. And he's demonstrated that some races that have occurred some years ago that were smashed coincided with the passage of the shock wave from the supersonic Concorde aircraft, which, is, which could easily overwhelm their ability to uh, localize infrasound signatures of the kind I've been describing. So we don't know yet whether John Hagstrom's theory uh, has legs. Uh, he hasn't been able to do the direct experiments that would enable us to uh, determine if it's correct, uh, nor are we quite sure what the role of olfaction is, but it looks as if pigeons uh, may well be using smell. They may also be using infrasound. They're certainly using um, landmarks. Uh, they're using uh, their ability to detect the Earth's magnetic field. And I shouldn't forget, they also use the, the light of the sun to help them maintain a steady course. So even that uh, is probably an incomplete account of everything that pigeons can do. That's remarkable. You also introduce us to animals that are much more remote on the evolutionary tree and yet use the sun in some truly astounding ways. I'm thinking of the dung beetle. Can you take uh, us through the, the dung beetles um, dance? I'm particularly fond of dung beetles, the scarabs. Yes. Uh, well, the, the, the dung beetles, of course, come in all shapes and sizes. And the one that is of particular interest is um, the African uh, nocturnal dung beetle of southern Africa, which uh, obviously goes about its business at night. Uh, these dung beetles are attracted to piles of dung, and when they arrive at a great heap of dung, they gather in large numbers and they sculpt balls of dung, which they then roll away as fast as they possibly can, going backwards, holding the ball between their back legs, and they try as far as possible to go in a straight line. And the reason for that is that if they don't go in a straight line, they run the risk of curving around again and getting back close to the dung ball and then being mugged by other dung beetles who also want the same dung ball. So they have to go straight to get away quickly. So the question is this, how do they know they're going straight? And uh, a group of scientists based at the University of Lund in Sweden, led by a professor from Australia called Eric Warrant. Uh, have done a, a series of fascinating experiments on these dung beetles. And the first discovery they made was that these dung beetles were making use of moonlight. They were actually using the polarization patterns in moonlight in order to maintain a steady course. 
that was remarkable enough, and it, it won uh, them a, an article in Nature um, and great excitement. And indeed, they, they got a, an Ig Nobel Prize uh, for their efforts, which, uh, of course, is, is a sort of backhanded compliment. Uh, but uh, they were then out again in, in Africa doing further research. Eric Warrant with, with his colleague Marie Dacca, and they were sitting around. It was dark. They had the dung pile ready, and they were waiting for the beetles to fly in. But importantly, the moon had not yet risen. Well, the dung beetles duly started to arrive, and lo and behold, they began to make balls and roll them away in straight lines. And Eric and Marie were looking at this in consternation and with some alarm because they were thinking, my God, perhaps we got it all wrong. Maybe it's not the moon. Maybe there's something else going on here. Um, and uh, they were perturbed because they thought they might have to withdraw their famous article in Nature. But then they had a, a bright idea. They, they looked up at the brilliant, dark, unpolluted sky on the edge of the, the desert. Uh, and they saw the band of the Milky Way. And they said to each other, could it be that they're actually using the Milky Way in the absence of the moon to orient accurately? Um, and they decided that that must be the explanation. So they proceeded to do some wonderful experiments, which included putting little cardboard hats on the beetles so that they couldn't see the sky when the beetles all went all over the place. So seeing the sky was obviously important. And then they put see-through hats on just in case it was the hats that were upsetting them. When they had the see-through hats, they could go straight again. And then finally, they ended up doing experiments in a planetarium where they could actually manipulate the uh, orientation of the Milky Way above them. And yet again, the evidence was clear. These uh, beetles were indeed orienting by the light of the Milky Way. And this uh, report was, in fact, the first report of any animal making use of the Milky Way for navigational purposes. And uh, I, I, I just love that. I think it's, it's, it's beautiful science. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful discovery. And there's something, there's something simultaneously humbling and unbelievably cute about the idea of beetles being celestial navigators. Oh, I absolutely agree. And it's made very poignant in your book in that you mention how uh, today 99% of U.S. and European populations and 80% of the world in general live under light polluted skies such that uh, you write 60% of Europeans and 80% of North Americans can't necessarily see the Milky Way due to the degree of light pollution we have today. And you give a really striking uh, story about an earthquake that occurred in Los Angeles in 1994, whereby this, the city was blacked out and multiple residents called emergency services to report this eerie silvery cloud in the sky, which was in fact the Milky uh -huh. Way, but they had never seen it before, which I was just uh, stunned by, the, by that contrast between you know how valuable and meaningful being able to see it can be for species like the dung beetle, but also humans potentially, um, versus uh, the impacts that we've had um, on our ability to even notice it, let alone guide ourselves by it. Yes, I feel very, very strongly about this. I, I've been privileged as a sailor to to see the unpolluted night sky out in the middle of an ocean, and and also actually in um, in Australia when I was 
joining in on an experiment which we might talk about later involving the bogong moth up in the mountains of New South Wales. And the, 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 the truly dark night sky is really one of the most magnificent spectacles the natural world can offer. I mean, you're literally looking out on half the visible universe. And the, the spectacle is so sublime. And I think it is nothing less than a tragedy that, that so many people will live their entire lives without ever knowing what that's like. Um, and that's something quite new. I mean, only 50 or 100 years ago, most people would have known what a dark night sky looks like. And most people also would have known how to find the North Star and, and how to recognize the constellations. And I think it's it's a, a really profound cultural um, and, if you like, spiritual loss that we have suffered. And it's it's happened so gradually that very few people have really noticed it or made a fuss about it. And uh, alongside all the other things we have to worry about, um, maybe it doesn't seem so important, but I think it is important. And I'm a great supporter of, of the International Dark Sky Association, who do a wonderful job promoting um, efforts to eliminate light pollution, and they offer certificates to national parks and places that have achieved proper dark sky status. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that organization. I'm glad, I'm glad they're doing the work that they're doing. We also were curious about the longitude problem, which you describe in the book, um, and that oh, some yes. migrating birds seem to have solved. What is that problem? Well, the longitude problem of, is something that um, puzzled human scientists um, and instrument makers and navigators for a very, very long time indeed. Perhaps I should start, though, by saying that um, in order to fix your position, uh, whether on land or sea, you need a coordinate system. Um, and the, the classic coordinate system that was developed by the ancient Greeks is latitude and longitude. Now, latitude, which is uh, a measure of how far north or south of the equator you are, is a relatively easy thing to determine, either by observing the sun or even more simply, actually, by looking at Polaris, the pole star. Because roughly speaking, if you measure the height of Polaris, above the northern horizon, that angle is your latitude. It's a wonderfully simple thing. Um, and longitude, which is the um, east-west uh, dimension, is much more problematical because, of course, the Earth is rotating constantly around its north-south axis. And in order to determine your position by reference to celestial bodies, that is to say the sun, moon, and stars, and planets, you need uh, not just to make an observation, but to know precisely when you made it. And you can then compare the value that you've got from making your observation with what it ought to be um, in relation to a reference meridian, typically Greenwich. Um, I wonder if I'm explaining this very clearly. It's rather hard to do in words. But the crucial point is that you need to know the time at two different places. You need to know the time where you are, the local time, and the time 
at Greenwich. And that will enable you to work out your longitude. Now, for an animal to do that would seem to be extraordinarily difficult. So the question arises, can any animals determine their longitude? And if so, how? Well, there isn't much evidence that any animals can do this, but there is some. And the strongest probably comes from the world of migratory birds. And one example I'll give you comes from the work of a scientist called Caspar Torup, who looked at the white-crowned sparrows that migrate from Alaska and Canada down the west coast of North America into uh, the southern United States and northern Mexico, I think, on a regular basis. And he uh, interrupted their migration. He caught some white-crowned sparrows, both adults and juveniles, in the middle of their southerly migration and promptly put them on board a plane and flew them right across the continent in an easterly direction to Philadelphia. And he then released the adults and the juveniles separately to see what they would do. The crucial question was, would they be aware that they had been displaced 3,000 odd miles in an easterly direction? And would they be able to make compensatory changes in their flight direction so as to maintain a heading towards their uh, goal in uh, Mexico? Well, the extraordinary thing he observed was that the adult birds did indeed seem to make uh, a significant course correction, which would take them not in the usual southerly direction, but in a southwesterly direction. Whereas the juvenile birds that had never before made that migratory journey, well, they were kind of suckered and they just continued flying south. So this suggested that the adult birds actually had some way of determining their longitude. Uh, the author of the study, Torop, had no real idea how they might be doing that. That was about 10 years ago. Uh, more recently, some Russian scientists have been looking at reed warblers, which are also uh, nocturnal migrants, uh, in the Baltic. And they performed some experiments of a similar kind in which they transferred uh, the birds from uh, a, a location on the Baltic coast to a location quite near Moscow, much further to the east. And they found something very similar. The adult birds seemed to be able to compensate for the, uh, for the displacement, and the juvenile birds couldn't. So what cues could the birds possibly be attending to? What would enable them uh, to make those course corrections? So uh, the Russian scientists decided to do something quite uh, simple but clever, which was to leave the birds where they were in the Baltic so that all the natural cues around them, that is to say the smells, the stars above them, and so forth, would be exactly the same. But instead, they would, they would alter the magnetic, the Earth's magnetic field around them to see whether they were able to detect a change in the uh, characteristics of the magnetic field. And again, to cut a long story short, what seemed to emerge was that the birds were sensitive to changes in one particular magnetic parameter, but only the adult birds. Um, and if the magnetic parameters were changed 
in such a way as to suggest to the birds that they were in a location much further to the west, in fact, a location like Scotland, um, it appeared they knew that that had happened and were able to make the necessary adjustments. So the theory, and it is no more than a theory, and I think this is still very tentative, the theory is that possibly these migratory birds are comparing the signal that they're getting from their magnetic compass sense with the evidence that they're getting from looking at the stars. And they are noticing that if the magnetic signal is one that is appropriate to a location much further to the west or to the east, uh, and they can compare that with the uh, celestial information they're getting and notice the difference. And using that observation, make the necessary course adjustment. If this turns out to be true, it will be a really, really remarkable uh, discovery. But I saw um, one of the scientists uh, quite recently from Russia uh, who was talking about this. And I think uh, he's done some more recent experiments with a, with a different species of warbler, and it didn't quite work out. So I think he's, he's still not quite sure whether this is a real effect or not. But if it is, it will certainly be uh, astounding. That's fascinating. And it highlights, I think, an idea that's that animates the book to some extent, which is in science, we often hear of the distinction between basic research just for the sake of learning about the animal and applied research conducted to develop drugs or develop other technologies with the use of the animal's body. And what's so fascinating about these cases that you introduce us to, I think, is that in a way, it kind of unites the two, that we're, we're looking at the animal in terms of its perspective so as to develop our own capacities to navigate and potentially develop technologies that ironically can inhibit our ability to be receptive in the way that they are, which is a point that Viveka had brought up to me earlier. And I thought that What's fascinating about the book is it's like we get these case studies of the animals, but as you were hinting at earlier, the case studies include the human animals who are navigating these methodological differences and um, who have experimental goals of their own. And we were wondering if you could take us into your own field research a little bit and tell us about some of the scientists that you encountered who are on the front lines of these questions and these debates. Well, thank you for asking that, because uh, I was really keen in this book to not just to uh, reveal all these sort of gee whiz amazing discoveries, but also to reveal something about the scientists and the kind of work they do and how they do it and the frustrations and the difficulties that they face. And uh, of course, I had plenty of uh, evidence of that when I went on these uh, field trips. So uh, one field trip took me to the Pacific coast of Costa Rica with uh, I suppose the man who is the, the kind of top expert on marine turtle navigation, Ken Lohman from uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he's been working on turtle navigation for a, for a long, long time and has, uh, has achieved some results that are really part of the bedrock of animal navigation science. And while I was out there, we, we were hoping to observe... Uh, an extraordinary event 
called an arivada, when olive ridley turtles, female turtles, come ashore to lay their eggs, not in their ones and twos or even their hundreds and thousands, but in hundreds of thousands simultaneously on one stretch of beach. It's a kind of crazy event. Um, and um, the reason for, for, for our interest in this was that one of the uh, PhD students that Ken Lohman was helping out was interested in the question of whether, of what it was that actually enabled these Olive Ridley turtles to to synchronize uh, their appearance on beach. And, and one of the other uh, students was also looking at the fascinating question of whether or not the turtle embryos, while buried in the nest, um, acquire some uh, awareness of the surrounding magnetic field. And if so, whether they imprint on it, whether they acquire uh, a, a sort of knowledge of that magnetic field, which would then play a crucial part in enabling them later, much, much later, 10, 15 years later in adult life to return to those same beaches. Well, we were there for two weeks and um, it was very frustrating because the the turtles refused to cooperate and they didn't arrive. And uh, I had to leave without even seeing the Arivada, which was very frustrating, but it was very good because I had plenty of time to talk about all the uh, aspects of, of turtle navigation with Ken Lohman and his colleagues while I was there. It was it was a great experience, but frustrating. Um, rather more uh, satisfactory, more rewarding was a trip I made to the snowy mountains of New South Wales in Australia to join Eric Warrant again, uh, the dung beetle man, uh, with some of his colleagues doing an experiment on a migratory moth with the wonderful uh, name of the bogong moth. It sounds like something out of Edward Lear. And uh, the bogong moth migrates uh, from southern Queensland all the way down to uh, the mountains of, of New South Wales and then goes back again. Uh, so it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary animal, in some respects even more impressive than the monarch butterfly. And the question we were addressing uh, was, are these bogong moths using the Earth's magnetic field? And um, this involved sitting up high up on a very cold hillside through the night, uh, conducting experiments on moths tethered in a kind of flight simulator surrounded with mag a magnetic coil system so that we could manipulate the magnetic field around them and then record the direction in which they flew. And it was, it was utterly fascinating and and very rewarding for me because I could see at first hand just how amazingly patient you have to be to get the results you're looking for. These scientists, this was I think their third or fourth year working on this project down on those hills in New South Wales. And uh, as it happens that that year they cracked it and uh, a paper was published last year that announced that, yes, indeed, uh, the bogong moth does use a magnetic compass to set its course. Um, the extraordinary thing I recently heard, though, is that we now know that in addition to their magnetic compass sense, the bogong moth is also, like the dung beetle, paying close attention to the Milky Way. So it's using that as a kind of backup system 
to help it maintain its northerly course as it leaves the snowy mountains. Mm, that's fascinating. Heading back and it, it, it's interesting, too, because that trip that you took, as you write in the book, takes place on a landscape that was traditionally occupied by Aboriginal people who had very different ways of navigating than we have today, where they would use follow what they'd call, and you describe briefly as song lines, which would be an auditory, essentially a song in which information about the landscape was included and is wrapped into the idea of dream time and um, to their whole spiritual and understanding of the world and of time in general. But it's very interesting nonetheless because it is an example of a radically different way of not just animals like the bogong moth, but people also tuning in to very fine and acute levels of perception that thereby enable them to navigate in ways that we've completely forgotten about in many cases now or have been close to or near eradicated in some. Yes, yes, you're so right. This is, again, this is something I'm really... Uh, I feel very strongly about because uh, there aren't many of these indigenous groups left uh, who are still practicing these uh, extraordinarily ancient navigational techniques. Uh, It's safe to assume that all human beings um, up until uh, a few thousand years ago would have been employing techniques of this general kind. Uh, But as you say, uh, the Aborigine um, uh, in Australia employ these extraordinary mnemonic systems for recalling the most um, intricate details of of the landscapes that they traverse. The Inuit uh, in uh, northern Canada uh, use very similar systems. Um, And the Polynesian navigators, about whom I know rather more, um, are, again, using um, an amazing array of different uh, natural cues uh, to enable them to make long open ocean voyages um, to find very small island targets after distances of hundreds or even thousands of miles. Something that um, until the advent of uh, GPS was quite challenging even for modern human navigators. Uh, these are truly spectacular uh, cultural um, artifacts, and they are endangered. I think happily, the Polynesian Voyaging Society, which was set up in the uh, 1970s to preserve these techniques in Polynesia, is having great success. But uh, the same may not be true uh, in northern Canada, uh, nor indeed in Australia and elsewhere. So I worry about that, and um, I think we we need to take steps to preserve these things wherever we possibly can. It reminds me of the poignancy of the Milky Way, the occlusion of the Milky Way that you were talking about earlier. There's this phenomenon that I learned about recently called space debris. So it's like the the refuse of humans' attempts to explore the universe have now accumulated around the globe in the form of this fence of garbage, basically, that if people have seen the movie Gravity, one of the characters has to try to stab her way through. And so it's like, it's not just that we've atrophied our own ability to navigate independently, but then there's this added irony that some of that atrophying was rooted in the desire to become even better map makers and even more kind of omnipotent animals. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. No, it is, it is a deep irony that, um, that 
satellite technology, which has given us the extraordinary uh, technical gift of um, of GPS, um, is also the technology that is cluttering up the sky with these bits of trash. And of course, now we've got uh, a whole new generation of low altitude uh, satellites being introduced. And there is real concern in, in the um, astronomical, astronomical community about uh, the impact those are going to have because uh, these are being lofted up into the sky in, the, in very large numbers and uh, they are likely to make it much harder to perform observations of the kind that um, astronomers need to perform. Uh, and indeed, I believe they will be a problem even for naked eye observers. So things are changing fast up there. You write about in the book, too, how our reliance on GPS now, in addition to leading us to not pay attention and and I think then as a result also not appreciate as much the natural world around us. It's also literally changing our brains in different ways and in ways that reminded me of a recent article I read in the New York Times, which is about a study of surgery residents. And they think that surgery residents now are less dexterous than they used to be, which is thought to be in part because of the games that we they play as children and so forth have changed. At least that was part of the speculation in the article. And you write about how it's how our reliance is is literally changing our brains, but then also really changing, I think, as well, how we appreciate animals. You tell a really gorgeous anecdote in the book about the Inuit people and one example of a British explorer and kayaker named Chapman who was uh, kayaking along the coast in a heavy fog with the Inuit and uh, wondering how in the world they were going to find their way back to their starting point. And then all of a sudden, the leader of the group turned them all very quickly in to the shore, and they were perfectly at the spot where they'd started. And later, he discovered that the, the way in which he'd done this was that each of the snow buntings, little birds along the way, had a unique call. And so the Inuit people were guiding themselves by the call of the bird, which I thought was it was so simple and so stunning. But it's a lovely, lovely story. Yeah, if you can just use GPS, though, you don't need to appreciate the, the remarkable nature of the bird to the same degree. No, exactly. I, I mean, GPS, I, I find myself very conflicted about GPS. There's, obviously, it is a, an astounding technical achievement, and it has provided us with all sorts of uh, advantages in terms of safety and convenience and so forth. Uh, but there's no question that we are becoming more and more heavily dependent on it. And I think there are real dangers associated with that increased dependence. Uh, at one level, rather obviously, uh, there is the danger that arises from the fact that GPS is actually quite vulnerable. Um, it's very, very easy to jam the signal from the satellites. Um, and that happens more than people realize. Um, and in time of war, it could be um, wiped out completely. Um, but it's also, uh, uh, I think, th and this is my more serious concern, as people turn their backs on the natural world around them and cease to navigate by using their senses and their native wit, uh, as they become exclusively fixated on these little glowing screens, uh, they are not only allowing the, the bits of the brain, the navigational circuits in their brains to atrophy, 
which they literally will do. They will the, the parts of the brain that are responsible for our navigational abilities do actually shrink if they're not exercised. But in addition to that, and I, I think more importantly, it's all part of the gradual process whereby we have alienated ourselves from the natural world over the last, I don't know how many thousand years. Uh, but the, the process of, of gradual transition from a hunter-gatherer existence to a, a civilized urban existence has time and again resulted in us losing contact with aspects of the world around us and losing all kinds of um, traditional wisdom and expertise rooted in the very close observation of the natural world and a deep, deep familiarity with it in all its aspects, whether it's a snow bunting's call, the behavior of clouds over an atoll in, a, in the open Pacific, the behavior of waves, the behavior of uh, sand dunes. Uh, it's Once you start looking at the range of skills and uh, the observational abilities of indigenous peoples, uh, they are truly astounding. And our reliance on technical aids, and I'm not just talking about satellite navigation here, even the humble magnetic compass uh, comes under this heading too. All of these things have resulted in us becoming increasingly cut off from the natural world. And there's no question that uh, our, we have a deep, deep need uh, physically, mentally, and spiritually to have contact with the natural world. The evidence for this is abundant and growing. Um, so I worry that if we become exclusively reliant on our electronic gadgets for finding our way around, yes, life may, in many respects, feel easier, but it will be impoverished we will be impoverished. We will be losing touch with some of those aspects of our nature that are crucial to who we are. I'm wondering, given your background in philosophy and experimental psychology, whether you see any connection between that process of alienation and the shift in the history of science from field-based non-invasive, non-interventionist ethological research that, so you spoke, you talked about Tin Bergen and Lorenz, who are two of the founders of that mode of inquiry, where it's the, this, you're just going out into the wild and making observations that yield these insights that then you can test in the laboratory in a more prescriptive way, where you model the possibilities and the benefit is rigor, but then the the potential liability is constraining the possible outcomes. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, on that shift. I do. I do. Though, curiously, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are, because it seems to me, in fact, that during my lifetime, um, there has been a growing awareness in the scientific community of the value of the kind of observations that I've been talking about. So when I was a student, um, the ethologists had just about achieved scientific respectability. Uh, and indeed, in 1973, uh, Lawrence and Tinbergen and von Frisch 
were given a shared Nobel Prize. Um, but I, I think many, if not most of the scientists uh, whom I've interviewed for this book and whose work I have relied on, bring together a recognition of the value of immersion in the animal's world, what's sometimes called the umwelt of the animal, um, and, a, and, a, and a really close appreciation of all the different aspects of the animal's behavior, um, together with uh, the use of all the high-tech equipment, the statistical techniques, and so forth. So whereas somebody like von Frisch um, achieved his results almost without the use of technical aids and almost without the use of statistics. Now we have scientists uh, like Ken Lohman or like Eric Warrant who are doing wonderful work in the field um, based on an intimate knowledge of the animals they're looking at, but coupled with uh, the, the latest tools um, from the laboratory and from uh, the world of statistics and so forth. Uh, and indeed, one of the most exciting areas that we haven't touched on uh, is the, the world of neuroscience, because uh, we are now seeing major progress in understanding what is going on in the brains, uh, not just of little creatures like insects, uh, but also of much larger ones like rats and mice and indeed human beings. So we're getting to the point where it's imaginable and I think in more than imaginable, it's, it's, it's quite close that we will be able, certainly in the case of insects, uh, to be able to give a full account of the emergence of an animal's navigational repertoire, starting from the sensory input and tracing that input all the way through the animal's nervous system, uh, through the mushroom body and the central complex to the, to the signals going out to the motor uh, nerves that enable the animal to uh, perform its navigational feats. We're a long way from that with mammals, but with, with insects, I think it's within sight. And maybe one day uh, we'll even be able to do that for more complex animals too. And that I think is immensely exciting. And I, and I love the, the way in which the, the different approaches, all the way from the ethological to the most uh, intricate uh, work of the neuroscientists and the computational scientists, and indeed, I haven't mentioned the geneticists, all of this is being integrated uh, to enable us to achieve a holistic account of uh, animal behavior. It's an extraordinarily uh, interdisciplinary field, as your statement and, and the book make clear. The discussion of the Umwelt and the, an idea that had been initially proposed by a scientist named Jakob Uxkull is really fascinating, I think, in particular thinking about maps in that the writer Robert McFarlane has talked about how maps have a fourth and a fifth dimension, which are to do with the relationship between the map and the map maker, and that any map oh, inherently yes. tells... at least that many dimensions. <laughs> right, yes, and, and many more, I'm sure, too. And, and Rebecca Solon, another writer who you quote in your book, who's written a, significantly um, about maps, talks about how maps are effectively always an exercise in editing. And by that, I take her to mean an exercise in, in what we consider important and worth paying attention to. And so it's, it's fascinating to think about the GPS... To reference Lindsay's point earlier, GPS and these other technologies, distancing 
ourselves from the natural world and almost like allowing us to not even have to make maps really independently yes. anymore while simultaneously our expertise about how animals make maps is becoming so much more nuanced and sophisticated. Yes, I'm glad you've mentioned maps because uh, the book, uh, as you will have observed, is sort of divided into two halves. First of all, I'm talking about animals that definitely don't use maps and rely on things like dead reckoning, which incidentally is still used by human navigators. Uh, it didn't stop in the 18th century. Um, and then later on, I talk about possible map use in, in non-human animals. And I think, to be honest, I'm quite skeptical about map use in non-human animals. I mean, there are some animals that do things that seem to suggest that maybe they have something like a map in their heads. But I'm not sure that we yet have any really solid evidence. And I suspect there's an element of, of projection in this. As human beings, we're so familiar with the concept of the map that we kind of think animals that can do extraordinary things like the the white crown sparrows we were talking about earlier, correcting for um, east-west displacements. We kind of think they must have a map in their heads, but I'm not sure that we're yet warranted in saying that. It's, it's necessary to make the distinction in the book because in the scientific literature, it crops up all the time. Uh, but I'm speaking uh, personally, I'm not yet really convinced that any non-human animals are using anything very like a map, um, but I, but it may be so. That's interesting. It reminds me of uh, the Jorge Luis Borges story on exactitude in science, which um, I'm sure you're familiar with, in which the... Uh, the one-to-one map. Right, exactly. The reader, for anyone who hasn't listened to it, uh, so, someone goes out to make a map of the kingdom, and first they make one, and it's you know the size of a table, but it's insufficient because they haven't put everything on there. So then they make a bigger one, and they keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger until the map is the size of the kingdom itself. Yeah. It's a lovely story. Yeah, to hear you talk about um, the animals in that way and that if you, you can almost imagine them having, you know, a map that is effectively the kingdom itself. I think, I mean, one of the things, one of the things that intrigues me is it, introspectively, as I navigate the world, um, I don't, I actually don't find that I am using anything really much like a map. Um, it doesn't seem to me that that is... I mean, I can do, I can imagine a map and I can, but that doesn't seem to me to be very typical of the way I actually behave. But I'm getting a long way from the science here, so perhaps I should shut up. <laughs> well, to close, we like to ask our guests whether there are a few books or films that have impacted how you think about non-human animals. Gosh, yes. I, you did warn me, so I have to. <laughs> um, and um, I, I, I think... There's a wonderful French author whom I quote and discuss in the book uh, called Jean-Henri Fabre, who was a 19th century, um, I suppose you, it, it's tempting to call him an amateur scientist, but he, he was really more than that. But he was a school teacher originally in the south of France, and he wrote a long series of books uh, which went under the, the title Souvenir Entomologique, uh, Entomological Memories, which include really some of the most enchanting descriptions of animal behavior of any kind. But the wonderful thing is that his focus is on insects. And he did some interesting and important early experiments on animal navigation too. So I think I, think I have to tip my hat to Jean-Henri 
he was a wonderful man and a, a, and a great writer too, and uh, he deserves much credit. I I also want to go back to my uh, distant childhood and recall uh, John Steadman introduced me to what was then the standard handbook of British moths, which was I was looking at it just yesterday and. It was first published in 1908. It's now been overtaken. There are better, more modern ones, but two volumes of beautiful illustrations. And I remember as a child just poring over these pictures of all these amazing moths uh, with all their extraordinary names, like the small fan-footed wave or the, I'm just looking through mm -hmm. it now, crazy names, the tawny speckled pug, um, all these names given to them by uh English naturalists in the 18th and 19th centuries, really. And that was a great inspiration to me, that book. Um, but I also want to mention uh, somebody uh, who has played an important part in my life because I've edited one of his books, Modern Painters, an abridged edition some years ago. And that's John Ruskin, the great uh, Victorian polymath and artist and uh, art and architecture critic, social reformer. Um, and the reason I mention him is because I think he was a man who had, in a more highly developed form than almost anybody I've ever come across, the ability to pay attention, to look closely and to see things, and then to describe them either in watercolor or in pencil or in words, in the most breathtakingly vivid and uh, evocative ways. And for me, uh, Ruskin's uh, accounts of his relationship with the natural world, whether it's a blade of grass or a, an alpine mountain range, um, are some of the most inspiring passages of, of, uh, of writing. And they've had a great influence on me. When it comes to films, a bit stuck, really. Uh, though something did come to mind, perhaps a, a, a rather odd thing, but I'll mention it anyway. I suddenly thought of Terence Malick's movie Thin Red Line, which is really a war film set in the Pacific. Um, but there are some... I think Malick is a very, very visual filmmaker. Um, I mean, he's really fascinated by image making. And, and that movie includes some very touching moments in which soldiers in combat notice around them a drip of water running down a leaf or an insect crawling along something. You know, the bullets are flying, the shells are exploding, but, but for a little moment, those frightened soldiers catch a glimpse of a kind of magic other world that is undisturbed by the war. And that's very, very powerful to me, very moving and touching. And uh, it's, yes, it's important. Thank you very much, David Barry, for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a great delight. Thank you for asking me. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio, the Law, Ethics and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about David Barry and his work.
Thanks for listening.